Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 287. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Everyone, it's fine and dandy. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. We are on to show 287. This is part two of the special for David Mercurio Riviera, the fantastic science fiction writer. Did anyone see our body faces there on, on YouTube where we did the video? And, you know, like I say, that interview came in last week's show, but also if you, if you haven't listened or haven't watched, we're there in full glorious colour in YouTube. And... Like I say, over the weeks, I'm hopefully going to you know do that as well, where we can kind of just get it up on YouTube as well as the the kind of show for any science fiction writers. I'm trying, I'm trying, trying, trying to get Will McIntosh to come on and, and have a little chat about his new novel as well, because Will, oh man, oh, don't get us excited about Will. <laughs> My mother could hear me talking now. So, I'll tell you what's coming in this show. We have a couple of announcements to make. Then I'm going to play a little promo by Paul de Filippo. Then we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis looking back at genre history. This is part two of Amy's Native American history. Then we are into the main fiction, which is Tethered by David Mercurio Riviera. And guess what? Just guess what? It is narrated by Ames as well. We're having a double bill of Amy H. Sturgis. <laughs> then we have a promo for Walk the Fire which is a shared world anthology, so hopefully you get excited about that. So that is today's show, 287. I do hope you'll stick around and enjoy it. So a couple of announcements I want to make there. Well, we are on the 16th of June. I am holding a writer's workshop. This is the third... God, how time flies. This is the third one in three years that I've held a writer's workshop. Now, this one is a little bit special as well, because it's it, it gives you more. It gives you more. So it's on the 16th of June. Tickets are £20, and it's all in glorious colour as well. Yes, we've got the video there as well, so we can do everything. You know, it's quite nice now. We can do quite a, a, certainly a lot more. So I have Paul de Filippo and Mike Resnick, for God's sake, man. Mike Resnick is doing the workshop. And if anyone listened to... It was show 234 where we played Mike Resnick's The Homecoming. Now, what a story, man. Just packed with emotion. Honestly, just stunning story. And did anybody notice anything different there? (laughs) I actually went back and looked to see what show number it was. Normally, I'm kind of somewhere in the archives there. (laughs) So, yes, we've got Mike Resnick. 
on for the writers workshop and there'll be, I'll explain a little bit more in a second or two about what they'll be covering but also we've got five tickets each where you can get your story critiqued and you get like a, a personal one-to-one video I was gonna say video experience with the writers but yeah you get your story looked after you get it kind of kind of critiqued and then you can jump on to the webinar just like a one-to-one at a date convenient you and get it you know talk about your story where you went wrong what you know what can it do to improve it so that's quite I'm, I'm actually quite neat and cool with that it, it's quite nice so what i've got is i've got a little probe or a little probe i've got paul the philip who i hooked up with paul and it's actually it's on youtube as well but you can have a listen to it now what paul's going to be talking about hello i'm very happy to be uh anticipating this uh writer's workshop uh with my uh, compatriot mike resnick he's going to address very practical business aspects of our craft. What I'd like to talk about is is dreamy, intuitive, uh, and yet uh, intellectual stage of writing, uh, and that is um, in the actual composition of stories, assembling um, the ideas that are going to flesh out a story. Science fiction is famously the literature of ideas, and this is not to denigrate the other aspects of the craft, character and plot and uh, suspense and all those other good things, but science fiction does hold a unique uh, place in the world's literature as being uh, the conveyor of big ideas and exciting and extravagant and, and off-the-wall ideas. And generating those is a skill like any other, which improves with practice and uh, can be taught. So what I will be focusing on in my lecture is exactly how to recognize some good ideas that can propel a story, where inspiration and new ideas come from, how to combine ideas and be kind of generous and extravagant and and wild with your ideas, not timid and and, uh, obvious and boring with your ideas. Just in general, how to craft a story that uh, is filled with kind of the the complexity and resonance that we find in real life in which we hope all of our fiction will capture to uh, some degree. This is kind of a, uh, a time when uh, we'll learn how to unfetter our imaginations, which even in the science fiction world are, are sometimes kept uh, too closely under rain. We want to uh, kind of uh, cut those reins in an intelligent fashion and um, and see just how far forces of our imagination can take us. And I hope you all um, will derive lots of excitement and new skills from this presentation. There you go. I'll try and get Mike on as well to have a little chat about, you know, his kind of side of it, you know, like the, the business side of writing. But I hope you can come along, you know, if you're kind of serious about your writing. This, I mean, Mike Resnick, Paula Philippo, you know what I mean? Some of the greats there of science fiction and, you know, like the topics they cover is, is what you want. So hopefully you will do that. Now, that's one little announcement on the 16th of June. Write it down. Tattoo it. Tattoo it. Come along to that. The next one is on the... Now, this is quite exciting. On... <laughs> I mean, I'm 46, but I'm going to sound like a little kid. On the 28th of July, we are going to hold a sofa con. Yes. Now, how cool is that? And this is something I want to do for, oh man, years. I got Skeet to do as a mock-up of the art. And I saved that folder in, I think it was Evernote. I, I use Evernote. And the date was something like, 
oh, I think it was like 2010. You know, it's like when I started doing all these workshops and, you know, events like that, that sofa con's always been in my mind. But like I say, there's just never been, you know, yes, there's other programs out there, there's other companies out there, but they've never kind of, they haven't lived up to the kind of, if you're getting people to pay some money, you want that event to kind of go perfect, you know what I mean? And that's what's never been the case, you know, and I've even, it's funny, we've, I've spoken with a couple of people who actually work in the NASA department, you know, and they can get, the, they can get, you know, buggies to, to Mars and everything, we're trying to set up a video conference and it's darn hard. So what we are going to do though, Never mind all that. We've got the software. We've got the technology. A sofa con. And you know what I, I kind of want to do, though, is make it personal, the kind of Starship sofa. It's just, you know, for us to kind of, you know, we're coming up to kind of show 300. You know, we're 286 there now. 287, sorry. When I, this, you know, it's not that far before for sure 300. And... That would be just lovely to have like a celebration, you know what I mean? So I'm getting Amy H. Sturgis is coming on there. I'm trying to get in touch with JJ Campanella, but he hasn't returned. He's probably front thinking, oh no. Dennis Lane's coming on there. And I'm trying for like a, a you know, so a, a guest of honor there. That's still in the works there. But we've got amazing stories there coming on board as well. So, and like I say, it, it's going to probably be, you know, a, a, a fair few hours event. And, you know, you're probably thinking, why, why are you doing this? What was, I honestly just love it. You know what I mean? I would love you to kind of come over. I'm not going to put the tickets on sale yet because, you know, we've got the, the kind of the 100-seat auditorium I kind of need to put away. Probably about 15 or 20 maybe tickets, you know, for the, the, the kind of lectures and the guests and everything like that. So what I'm going to do is I'm not certainly going to put them on sale just yet, but I was going to keep on mentioning it and kind of, you know, building up the hype. Because what I want is, you know, a kind of true dedicated Starship Sofa fans to come and enjoy this sofa con. You know what I mean? I went and spur of the moment there, lying in bed. I, was I lying in bed with my phone? Uh, you know, technology is far better. And I went, oh, I think I'll go and buy the, the, the domain name. And actually, sofacon.com was gone. Some sofa company might have had it. But I've gotten, which I think is actually quite apt, sofacon.org. Got Josh busy away there now getting that site up and running. Because you know, the idea is every year is to have a sofa con, just make it bigger and better, you know, a total celebration of science fiction. And but also, you know, what, what I kinda wanna do is, you know, make it Starship Sofa's own sofa con, you know what I mean? So for the for, for all of who's listened to the show, that would be, you know, a main thing is to, to kind of get get some of us on and, and enjoy this, you know, like a celebration. See Amy doing like a, you know, a, a lecture or a talk on her looking back at genre history, you know, to, to have, like, sit with J.J. Campanella while he does a science news. And then, you know, get what well, I've got Gregory Frost is going to do, like, read from a book, you know, so we'll have, like, readings as well. So Ted Kuzmatka, he's coming on board. And we've got feelers in there for, like, two big writers, what? huge right there so looking forward to that if we can get that sorted out so that is on the 28th of july got some artwork coming as well by our very own scott and you know like i say i'm each week i'm going to kind of keep on you know sowing the seeds get your anticipation you know eager for these tickets tickets will be cheap as chips 10 pound do you mean i want to make it so people can you know if you kind of just want to think i'll go and see what that's all about I would love you to come over. You know what I mean? Be fantastic. So, Amy's going to be there, but we'll t- we'll have a little chat with Amy now. Looking back at genre history, Ames. 
Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. As you may recall, in our last segment, we started discussing the relationship between Star Trek and Native America. This is from some of the research I did to write my essay for the recent Star Trek and History, a collection edited by Nancy Regan for Wiley and Sons and published in March 2013. In our last segment, we talked about the original series of Star Trek and its episode, The Paradise Syndrome, which was, okay, let's admit it, not Star Trek, the original series' greatest moment. Fortunately, we can see a bit of growth and development as we move from the original series to the animated series. Now, I should point out that by the time Star Trek, the animated series, hit the airwaves, President Richard Nixon, in his message from the President of the United States transmitting recommendations for Indian policy, this was 1970, already had admitted the failure of the federal government's termination policy toward Native Americans. He'd also named self-determination as one of the goals for future policy. The American Indian movement was active. It was getting a lot of widespread attention. And there was a particular moment when the world's eyes turned to American Indian issues, and that was during the Academy Awards ceremony in 1973. Marlon Brando was named Best Actor for his performance in The Godfather, and instead of attending, he sent activist Sasheen Littlefeather to the stage to, on his behalf, refuse the award in protest of the U.S. government's treatment of American Indian movement members at the ongoing siege at Wounded Knee, and the U.S. film and television's misrepresentation of Native Americans. So this was a time, in other words, for Star Trek to get it right. Now, the animated series, like the original series, only gave one episode to the subject of Native America, but its storytelling was vastly improved. The second season episode, How Sharper Than a Serpent's Tooth, introduces viewers to the first Native American character to be identified as a Starfleet officer in Star Trek canon. His name's Ensign Dawson Walking Bear. And really, the only way we know he's Native American is because he tells us he's a Comanche. But he has the same haircut as his colleagues. He has the same standard uniform. He gives us no visual cues as to his ethnic identity. He pretty much saves the Enterprise and its entire crew when the ship encounters the alien Kukulkan. Kukulkan resents the fact that Earthlings have forgotten him from his visit long ago. He feels very put upon like the parent of an ungrateful child. But... Inzan Walking Bear recognizes the creature as the winged serpent god of Mayan and Aztec legend. Because he makes this identification, he persuades the alien to give the crew a second chance at survival. One of the really interesting things about this episode is how it treats ancient Native Americans with regard to other ancient peoples of Earth, because we discover that Kukulkan not only visited Earth, but he shared his knowledge with some of the ancient peoples he thought were most advanced and most interesting. So he gave the Maya their calendar system, for example, and he also gave the secret of the pyramids to the Egyptians. 
So rather than the idea that aliens had to help along the Native Americans, it's actually that the attention from Kukulkan was、uh, a privilege because he considered them worthy of his time and attention. This episode was、uh, well received. The creators submitted the episode to represent the series as a whole to the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, and the result was the 1975 Daytime Emmy for Outstanding Entertainment in a Children's Series. And perhaps one of the reasons this episode is more sympathetic and sophisticated in its handling of Native America is that one of its two co-writers, Russell Bates, is a Kiowa, and so had those issues on his mind. Of course, after animation, the next frontier for Star Trek, if you will, was film, and Star Trek: The Motion Picture came out in 1979. It doesn't really address Native America in any way through specific characters or plot points, but it is interesting to point out that there are wide sweeping shots. <laughs> That's an understatement. The entire movie is wide sweeping shots, right? But in some of the wide sweeping shots of the crew, viewers see at least three Starfleet crew members on board the New Enterprise who appear to be Native Americans. For example, one woman wears the standard Starfleet uniform, but she also wears a bone choker with a carved animal totem or fetish, and her hair is styled in braids wrapped with what seems to be strips of leather and beaded trimmings. This is a step away from Ensign Walking Bear in the animated series, who looks completely assimilated in his culture by the fact that he and his crewmates look exactly the same. But then again, in that episode, we have the chance for him to tell us that he is Comanche. In the movie,、uh, there is no opportunity for these characters to talk, and so visually, the way they do that is to show us that. There are, in fact,、uh, Native American people、um, who are、uh, compatible with and respected by the Federation, and certainly a part of its future. In the 1980s and 90s, Star Trek: The Next Generation reframed the way that Star Trek looked at Native America, and did more than any of its predecessors to establish a comprehensive future history. For at least one community of North American Indians, the seventh season episode "Journey's End" considers the tough position Captain Jean-Luc Picard is placed in when he gets orders to remove, by any means necessary, a community of Native Americans who've established a new home on the planet Dorvan Five. Unfortunately for this community, the Federation has negotiated peace with the Cardassian Union, and the ultimate settlement reached redraws the boundaries, putting Dorvan on the wrong side of the Cardassian border. In other words, through no fault of these Federation citizens, who should be protected by their government,、uh, their world has been negotiated right out from under them and into the hands of the enemy. The episode's treatment of these Native Americans and their plight is important, I think, in three ways. First, it revisits the removal theme that is part and parcel of Native American history in the United States and Canada. And secondly, it 
deals with the idea of generational guilt. Are we responsible for what happened in the past and for what our ancestors did? And lastly, for its handling of native spirituality. Okay, first things first. We learn in this episode about the colonization of Dorvan. According to the leader Anthwara, a group of native North Americans left Earth and searched for, quote, over 200 years to find a suitable site to create a home. This episode takes place in the year 2370, so we can guess that the immigrants left the planet in the mid to late 22nd century. They ended up on Dorvan, um, which holds a deep spiritual significance for them, they say, and they've spent two decades building a life there. And we see this united Native American community of the future seeking sovereignty and self-determination in the stars. We can only assume that's because they failed to achieve it on their homeworld, but it is a very hopeful picture. And then, of course, you have this proposed evacuation, and it seems to be history repeating itself, happening in a cycle, yet another removal. First, there's the forced removal in North America due to white encroachment, and then there's a second removal by choice in the decision to leave Earth, and now this third, against the will of the community members, is at the hands of Picard and Starfleet. As Picard says, and I quote, there are some very disturbing historical parallels here. Once more, they are being asked to leave their homes because of a political decision that has been taken by a distant government. Okay, the good news, you could say, is that you have this native community, identity, culture, uh, religion, surviving to the 23rd century, even if it is sort of a homogenized form. But the bad news is that you still have this community um, being the uh, political football of governments whose actions are beyond their control. Secondly, there's this issue of generational guilt, which sort of dovetails well into this idea that history keeps repeating itself. And Thwara brings to Picard's attention the Pueblo Revolt of 1680. During that time, natives defended their land against the Spanish, and the Spanish, a few years later, responded with a savage attack that was generally a slaughter. And it just so happens that one of the Spanish soldiers responsible um, was an ancestor of, you guessed it, Jean-Luc Picard. So by doing the right thing and defending the rights of this community now, um, maybe, it seems, Picard could erase the stain of family guilt. He claims that he's not really swayed by this. He's not going to hold himself responsible to what's happened uh, in the past, the deeds of his ancestors. But the situation really disturbs him. Ultimately, he's saved from having to make a decision because the colonists themselves choose to renounce their Federation membership and remain without representation or advocacy, um, not that their advocates or representatives did much good to them before, in Cardassian territory. So by confronting really head-on the issues of um, how the future history is replaying past history and how uh, there's this undercurrent of generational guilt, I think the episode is more complex and sophisticated than those that came before. 
but the fact that it's more informed and more mature is sort of counterbalanced by the way in which the episode deals with native spirituality. Wesley Crusher, the genius son of Dr. Beverly Crusher, returns on leave from Starfleet Academy, not really sure of his direction in life. And while all of the rest of this stuff is going on, he goes to the surface of Dorvan Five and encounters a holy man among the Native Americans, Lakanta. And he claims, Lakanta claims, he's been waiting for Wesley. And Wesley undergoes a vision quest, after which Lakanta outs himself and admits that he is the Traveler, a shape-shifting alien who can alter time and space with his thoughts, and he wants to teach Wesley how to realize his remarkable potential. Okay, there's some problems with this. Um, first of all, there's not only a sort of generic, general way that they treat the Vision Quest, but they also deal with it kind of flippantly, um, that... It's not a sacred practice. Um, Wesley just enters into it, ignorant about what it is. He's not prepared for it. And he's doing it purely for selfish reasons. This seems kind of inauthentic and also sort of disrespectful, honestly. But it's also a bit troubling that some of the most profound insights viewers get about the Native American community and its culture and its way of life and its worldview aren't from the Native Americans themselves. It's from this advanced alien, an alien who actually appears to be white. And so the native characters aren't allowed to speak for themselves. And really we're left uncertain whether we're supposed to understand all these things we were told as representing the ideas of the native community or of the alien traveler himself. I should point out, though, that the casting of Chidimacha actor Ned Romero as the colonist's leader, Anthwara, and Cree actor Tom Jackson as the holy man, Lakanta, marks the first time in Star Trek that Native characters, at least those with speaking roles, were portrayed by actors of Native ancestry. Romero later portrayed another Native character, Commander Chakotay's great-grandfather, in the Voyager episode, The Fight. And we are up to Star Trek Deep Space Nine and Star Trek Voyager, which I believe are subjects for another segment. So let me end here and promise that I will be finishing this discussion of Star Trek and Native America when we meet again very soon with another look back into genre history. Thank you so much for joining me. There you go, Amy, thank you so much. You know, I'm so lucky to get Amy, and I have Amy, you know, since kind of really Starship so far. You know, she was there when me and Kieran were kind of working out and doing things. But to have Amy on, you know, to do these looking back at genre histories and just be involved with Ames. And like I say, you know, so far con there now as well. And Ames, you know, is up for anything. You know what I mean? I draw, Ames, Ames, you fancy doing, should we do, what about this? You know, have you, have you thought of this? Should we do this? And Ames is just like, you can almost see the glee in her eye when you kind of suggest things. Oh, I'll do, I'll do that. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Ian, thank you so much. And like I say, we're looking forward. We've got some things, hopefully, in the fire for this sofa con, 28th of July. That would be fantastic if, that, if we can pull that off, Ian. That would be fantastic. <laughs> so, what do we need to talk about now? Donations. Someone's turn to get the bar. <laughs> you know why?
That's one of my faults. Is I think I think it's something like that. You know, they kind of little example of how to kind of get donations, how to mention donations. I've mentioned last week that it's like me always being up at the bar getting the drinks and come on, someone else is round. Pay that you know the donations help the show. And my wife says, you know, when you're kind of getting that, you just go over it on the same. Think of something else. So that's one of my there you go a bit personal thing. That's one of my little faults. That and I laugh at my own jokes as well, which is. <laughs> and that weird tone. So, it is donation time, you know what I mean? If you kind of believe what we're doing here with Starship Sofa, everything that we're doing, you know what I mean? We kind of need funding for it. Please, come over. It would be fantastic if you kind of give a donation, a monthly donation. That's all I'm asking, you know what I mean? Like, help out with a monthly donation. Just put that bedrock in so you're looking after it and you're kind of, you know, you're at the bar getting the drinks in. You know, there's been a few who have been there from the start when I mentioned, you know, when I first kicked off the sanatorium and got the donations. You know who? Amy H. Sturgis. Do you know what I mean? Just being there from day one, just putting a little bit in each week just to make sure. And she's on the bloody show. Do you know what I mean? I should be paying Amy. You know what I mean? So there you go. Please, if you'd be kind enough to do that, that would be fantastic. I would actually swear now because I'm nearly in the rhythm of, you know, language is getting a bit colourful there. Please get... It's helped out. So, next up is Tethered by Mercurio David D. Riviera. Did I get <laughs> David Mercurio Riviera there? Did I, did I get that right that time? If you remember last week, we doing a two-part special on David's work. And David's got event the, Across the Event Horizon, which is his new anthology out there with. It's got some fantastic stories in. Like I say, you can go over to YouTube and see our Bonnie faces on there or listen to last week's to the interview that I did with David as well and his other story. But this one is narrated by Amy H. Sturgis. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Tethered. On the shore of Ontario Lacus on southern Titan... Kara molded castles from the wind-blown sediment that served as sand. Her parents stood at the threshold of their shelter in the distance, chatting with their sponsor, the Wurgen responsible for transporting her family from Earth. Kara lay on her stomach while the methane waves lapped against the shore, tickling her bare feet. She held up her hand against the smoggy orange sky and studied the barely visible blue tint that covered her skin. Her mother had described it as a special coat that protected them from the cold weather. The Worgen force field over Ontario Lacus shielded them from radiation and modulated the gravity, but they still needed the coat to protect them from the temperatures. It sure didn't feel cold, Kara thought. It didn't even look chilly, although Kara's mother had told her that Titan was colder than the coldest place on Earth. A young Worgen, their sponsor's daughter, tentatively stooped down next to her. Soy Beatrix, she said. The alien girl was squat and scaled and spoke with a slight accent, so she must have just learned Spanish. It took Worgens about a day or so to speak a language fluently. My brother and I were wondering... What are you doing? A fat, gray-scaled Worgen boy with round eyes peeked at them from behind a red boulder about fifty feet away. Why is he hiding? He doesn't like the way humans make him feel. Really? I've never heard that before. 
You make him feel too good. Kara shrugged. Of course the boy felt good around humans. He was working. She was amused by the fact that the girl wore a red, skin-tight swimming cap over her flat head. Every worgen she had ever seen wore green, leafy, wreath hats. I'm building a sand castle. What's a castle? Beatrix said. Kara giggled. <laughs> a house where a king lives. The worgen stared at her and didn't respond. Kara wondered whether the alien girl knew what a king was. Can I help? Beatrix said. Every worgen Kara had ever met asked her parents the same question. Can I help? Can I help? Her mother and father were sick of the question, but it was the first time a worgen had asked her, and it made her feel grown up and important. Normally her parents sternly said no, and the aliens would slink away with their heads down and their shoulders slumped, but Kara didn't want to make the alien girl unhappy. Yes, you can help. She showed Beatrix how to pack the sediment and mold it into towers for the castle she was building. After a while, bored with this activity, Kara said, I know something even more fun. Let's go for a swim and catch purpuffers. What are those? Kara displayed her left forearm, which was covered with furry bracelets. They're pretty, aren't they? I have all the colors except purple. Purple purpuffers are the hardest to find. She shuffled to the edge of the lake. Beatrix stood up and looked out at the thick pink waters that sloshed back and forth in slow motion. I don't. I mean, she stared silently. Follow me, Kara said. Six bots skittered around Beatrix's feet. They were as large as cats, only Kara thought they looked more like praying mantises in the way they crouched on their spindly rear legs. Three of them stood in front of the Worgen girl, blocking her path, and red lights glowed at the end of their six appendages. Beatrix clapped her hands, and they scattered to one side, allowing her to walk past them. As they waded into the lake, Beatrix pulled off her robes and tossed them to the bots. Kara didn't know what she expected to see beneath the alien's clothes, but the Worgen girl simply stood there naked, unashamed. She had smooth white skin speckled with silver scales that sparkled when they caught the light at certain angles. Kara considered taking off her own bathing suit, but then remembered the Worgen boy spying on them from behind the rock. They dove into the water together, their blue body fields bright in the red murk of the lake. They were less buoyant in this liquid than in water, and its ruddy color made it hard to see. Kara forced herself to go deeper, reaching out blindly and hoping to latch on to one of the furry purpuffers that filled the lake. Kara heard a muffled scream. She barely made out the Worgen girl's blue body field far below. Beatrix waved her arms over her head, sinking deeper. Kara dove closer, hooked her arm around the Worgen's waist, and kicked hard until they broke the surface. Don't struggle, Kara gasped. Don't struggle, she shouted for help, but no one on the shore seemed to hear her. You're okay. I've got you. After a few panicked seconds, Beatrix relaxed in her arms, and they floundered back to shore. 
Kara's screams had alerted the medbots, which immediately scoured over Beatrix's face and chest. Kara's parents and their Wurgen patron came running and stood watch until the medbots eventually blinked yellow, signaling that Beatrix was unhurt. The adult Wurgen, who Kara believed to be Beatrix's father, said, You need to be more careful, before quickly turning his attention back to Kara's parents. Are you sure I can't help you with anything? he said to them. Perhaps I can assist with the interior decoration of your shelter. Her parents turned away without answering, and the Wurgen followed close behind them. Once the adults had left, Kara sat silently beside Beatrix for several minutes, burrowing her toes beneath the pasty sediment. There was no longer any sign of the Wurgen boy. He hadn't approached. Even when the medbots had examined his sister, Kara finally broke the silence. We can't drown, you know, she said, pointing to the blue tint that coated their bodies. Beatrix paused, staring out at the pink waters. Then why didn't you just leave me? I wasn't going to swim back to shore while you were out there all alone and afraid. At this, the Wurgen girl turned to face Kara. She tilted her head to the left and nodded, smiling warmly. Don't you know how to swim? Kara said. Beatrix shook her head. Then why did you go in with me? You said it would be fun, Beatrix said, and I wanted to make you happy. Oh. The steady wind blew and neither of them spoke for a long time. Can I see your hand? Kara said. She removed a red purpuffer from her left arm and placed it around the Wurgen girl's wrist. Here, this is for you, a gift. The Wurgen girl's eyes brightened. That tickles, she said. Sometimes the purpuffers expand and contract a little bit when they're fresh out of the leg. No, she said. I meant your hand. When you touched me. Later that evening, when Kara snuggled in bed, she couldn't get the words of the Wurgen girl out of her head. The Wurgen girl who so wanted to be her friend that she would risk her own life to make her happy. Encrypted. Medical journal entry number 223 by Dr. Juan Carlos Barbaran. The Wurgen headtail, or tether, As it is referred to in common parlance, originates at the base of the secondary spine. As the subject matures, the head tail extends, lining both the secondary and tertiary spines, and ultimately coiling into the hollow cavity of the cranium. Note Wurgen physiology has no analog to the human brain. All neural activity is centered in a swath of cells that surround their upper and lower jawbones. See Med Journal entry number 124. Every day after VR school, Kara met Beatrix at the lake. They waded up to their waists and jumped up and down in sync with the slow, swooshing waves. The winds never stopped on Titan. After what happened at the lake, Beatrix's father programmed bots to swim alongside them at all times and ensure their safety. Like all Wurgens, Beatrix only had one parent, but to Kara, he seemed awfully distant. Spending most of his time with humans instead of with Beatrix or her brother. 
over time, Beatrix became less afraid of the waters, and Kara taught her to swim and to hunt for her puffers. It didn't take Beatrix long to get the hang of it. In fact, she became so skilled at her puffer hunting that she and Kara would often leave the lake with their arms and legs draped with the furry creatures. When they weren't swimming together, they would spend hours sculpting intricate castles and spacecraft in the pasty orange sands. Or Beatrix would try to teach Kara how to sing like a worgen, which Kara found challenging given the chirping and rumbling noises that Beatrix could make with her throat. Even during the rainy season, when the waves were too choppy to swim, she and Beatrix would play outdoor VR games. As the settlement by Ontario Lacos expanded, more human children took to the lakeshore and joined them. Kara pointed out the human boys she found cutest and what she liked most about them: their swaggering walk, or broad shoulders, or dimpled smiles. Beatrix found this fascinating, as she did everything about human beings. She mentioned how beautiful she thought the other adolescents were, girls and both alike. And became animated whenever they huddled together and shared their secrets. As they spent more and more time together, Kara found herself forgetting that Beatrix was a worgen, except for those occasions when she stared at Kara intensely and mentioned the bright rainbow-like auras that she saw around all humans. How her upper heart fluttered at the mere sight of them. How she spent every waking hour thinking about what she could do to make them happy. Kara didn't like to hear this; it made her feel less special. What about Worgen boys? Kara asked her one day while they treaded water far from shore. Which ones do you like? There were few Worgens present on Titan because of a treaty between their peoples that restricted their numbers. But Worgen children occasionally gathered at the shore to watch the humans. It's different for us, Kara," she said. "We don't think about things that way. Well, how do you think about them? The waves washed over them as they bobbed in the lake. I can't explain. Try. I don't like them in the same way that you like human boys. At least, not right now. But when I reach a certain age, my body will change. Change, Kara said. Beatrix hesitated, as if struggling to find the right words. Is it like having your period? Kara said. She had explained menstruation and making babies and every aspect of human reproduction to Beatrix in excruciating detail, and she, of course, had found it utterly captivating. Was there anything about humans that didn't enthrall her? No, my cranial opening will expand, and my cord will release. It will connect with the cord of a perfect genetic match, and then I'll be tethered. Kara stared at the red swimmer's cap on Beatrix's flat head. After years of tethering, the cord retracts, and the mated couple. Beatrix looked around to make sure that only Bot swam near them. We become one," she whispered. "Our bodies merge. You mean you have sex? Not like your people, Kara. Real sex. The merge is permanent. What do you mean permanent? How can that be? The passive partner is absorbed. 
The dominant partner then becomes pregnant with a brood of children. Kara stared at her in horror. So, if you have a baby, you die? It depends on whether my genes are passive or dominant. But I don't think about it in terms of dying. It's the best part of being alive, Kara. I can't wait to be tethered. Okay, Kara said, trying not to think about it. She decided to change the subject. What's your homeworld like, B? I've never been there, but I hear that the white skies and the black sand deserts are so beautiful that the mere sight of them can make a grown worgen cry. I wish I could see it, Kara said. I wish I could travel to all the amazing planets in our galaxy. She wanted, more than anything, to be an explorer like her parents, working in tandem with the Wurgans to colonize the universe. So many other worlds had been opened up to them thanks to Wurgan field tech. Colonization efforts were already underway on Triton and Enceladus, as well as incredible alien worlds hundreds of light years away, such as Langolana and Verdantium. A wave splashed over them. What do you want to be when you grow up, B? Beatrix looked up into the orange sky. I hadn't thought about it before, but being an explorer sounds wonderful, Kara. She tilted her head to the left in that familiar manner and nodded, smiling warmly. Especially if I can explore the cosmos with you. Beatrix! A voice shouted from the shore. Her brother Ambus called for her to return to her hearth, as he always did when dusk approached. Karen knew that by the time they made it back to shore, he would be gone. She had yet to see Beatrix's brother up close. Let's race, Kara said, and she stroked furiously, leaving Beatrix behind in her wake. A moment later, Beatrix jetted past her, propelled by the bots, a huge grin plastered on her face. Encrypted. Medical Journal Entry Number 224 by Dr. Juan Carlos Barbaran. A contractile sheath gives the tether a pronounced elasticity as it emerges through the cranial canal. The tail end is laced with thousands of microscopic nerve fibers and pore receptors. Muscle spindles allow the tether to unfurl and undulate toward the worgen mate. When two tethers come into contact, the fibers bore into the receptors of the worgen with the passive genotype. This signals the commencement of macromyosis. One day, Kara agreed to meet Beatrix by the lake, but a mile farther north, where fewer ice boulders dotted the shore and ten-foot orange dunes draped the surface. Her puffers were said to be even more plentiful in this area. As she approached, Kara heard someone shout her name from behind a red dune. She recognized the voice immediately. Ambus? Stay where you are so I can't see you. What do you... And don't speak. Your voice is too... Sweet. I don't want to give in to it. Like my sister. And my father. Just listen. If you respect my sister, you'll stay away from her. Kara fought the urge to answer him. She doesn't have the will to resist you. 
How can she choose her own path with you around? How can she be her own person? If you really consider yourself her friend, just leave her alone. Kara couldn't stay quiet anymore. B can pick her own friends. Why should you decide for her? She scaled the dune to confront Ambas, but when she reached the top, he was no longer there. His footprints receded into the distance, snaking behind the sand drifts into the horizon. Encrypted. Note for future study. The evolutionary purpose of Worgen gender remains a mystery, as it appears to play no role in their procreative processes. The prevailing theory posits that a diverse alien gene pool results in the Worgen's varying physical characteristics, and that it is human perception that assigns those attributes, what we consider to be a gender. Kara rode on a disc-shaped buzzer that sped three feet off the ground, clutching the handlebars tightly. She had made arrangements to meet Beatrix in the Aru region, at the viewing post at the foot of Tortola Facula, an active cryovolcano outside the colony's force field. Normally, she might have visited Beatrix at her hearth, but she didn't want to run into Ambus. Even after all these years, he still made it a point to avoid contact with humans, believing that they fogged his mind and skewed his perception of reality, Beatrix had explained. He'd even taken to wearing special earplugs and visors that he hoped might protect him. When Kara arrived, she found Beatrix waiting for her on a bench at the Overlook, staring raptly at some newly landed seed ships. The colonists stood near the yellow hash marks that signaled the force field's perimeter and viewed the volcano shooting spumes of hydrocarbon-rich materials miles into the atmosphere. It would later rain down onto the surface as liquid methane, feeding the thousands of lakes and tributaries in the region. Beatrix approached when she saw her step off the buzzer. You let your hair down. You look more beautiful than ever, Kara. Come on, I bet you say that to all the humans. She paused. No, <laughs> really. They laughed and hugged. I'm so glad you suggested getting together, Beatrix said. It's been too long. While they spoke every few days, it had been several weeks since they'd seen each other. Ever since Kara had graduated and her parents had relocated to Axelus Colony on Titan, she'd been working with the colonization enterprise, thanks to some strings her parents had pulled before departing, helping to plan the next great human worgen expedition. The target world was a rogue planet that had escaped Cancri 55's orbit and now roamed freely through space. What did you want to tell me, Kara? Beatrix asked. It sounded important. I think I'm in love, B. Beatrix stopped in her tracks. Oh? His name is Juan Carlos. We've only gone out a few times, but we seem to have made that instant connection. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yes, I do. She hesitated to see if Beatrix was joking, then continued. He's a doctor who works with biotech at CE. He's got a reputation for being quite opinionated, uncompromising to a fault. Except with me. With me, he's just a big softy. 
She described his thick eyebrows and slicked-back black hair, his lean, muscular physique, and she told Beatrix about everything they had in common, about their three dates together, including how they'd kissed in the empty office at CE until they were interrupted by guard bots. Kara and Beatrix strolled arm in arm along the edge of a great gorge that overlooked a river. Southern Titan teemed with ridges and crevices and chasms, all filled with flowing ethane and methane. Kara noticed that Beatrix had stayed quiet for a long time after she'd spoken about Juan Carlos. Sometimes she forgot that B was a worgen, that like all worgens, she couldn't help but love her and perhaps be jealous of her new relationship. Maybe it had been a mistake to confide in her, but B was her oldest and dearest friend. She decided to change the subject. How's Ambus? Beatrix stopped. She released Kara's arm and rubbed her shoulders nervously. What is it? Kara said. Beatrix turned away and started walking again. Tell me, what's wrong? Beatrix stood at the lip of a precipice. You know how Ambus has always felt about humans. She nodded. Yes, he wants to avoid humans, so, of course, he lives in a colony of humans on Titan. That's not fair, Kara. He was brought here as a child. He had no say in the matter. And now that he's on the verge of reaching maturity, I'm afraid for him. He's found others who believe, as he does, that co-exploration with human beings was a huge mistake. Really? Kara had always found Ambus eccentric, but basically harmless. Well, it isn't as if Worgens would ever harm humans. Beatrix looked away. B? There's been a drug developed off-world recently, Kara, a suppressant that distorts the way that Worgens perceive human beings. It's horrible. It mutes our natural love for your people. And Ambus took it? Its effects are only temporary, no longer than a few minutes. He views it as a way to free his mind. You mustn't say anything, Kara. You have no idea of the consequences if anyone were to know. This is a serious crime. Does your father know about this? My father left a few weeks ago to start work on a new project, the construction of another city field over Xanadu, an equatorial titan, Beatrix said. Maybe I'll go join him, get away from all of this. That's really what you want? After a long pause, Beatrix said, Now that you've met someone, I'm not sure there's anything left here for me. I don't want you to worry about Juan Carlos. That has nothing to do with our relationship. We've always been friends, and we're going to stay friends forever. No man can change that. Beatrix's face brightened, and they continued their trek along the edge of the gorge, the ethane-filled tributaries churning far below them. Encrypted. Med Journal Entry Number 225 by Dr. Juan Carlos Barbaron. Absorption. The first step in macromyosis is the penetration of the headtail fibers into the specific pseudoprotein receptors of the passive worgen's tether. Enzymes quickly dissolve the base plate. The tethers become one, triggering significant changes to the alien's body chemistry. See journal entry number six.
Kara lowered her head and trudged forward into the driving pink snow. Her boots sank into the slushy drifts as she made it over the bend, and Beatrix's hearth came into view. The dwelling resembled the upper half of a metallic egg with two arched openings on opposite sides. The Wurgens had a very rigid conception of exits and entrances. Juan Carlos, her fiancé, had wanted her to spend the day visiting with his parents, but she'd grown increasingly concerned over the fact that she hadn't heard a word from Beatrix in over a week. It wasn't like her. Usually the problem was keeping Beatrix from calling too often, something else Juan Carlos bitterly complained about. But Beatrix couldn't help herself, Kara had explained to him, for what seemed like a thousand times. She was working, after all. Juan Carlos didn't want to hear it. Kara stepped through the archway, stomping the snow off of her boots. Her blue-tinted body field clicked off automatically. The welcoming bots skittered at her feet, unlaced her boots, and laid out slippers for her on the scale-patterned floorboards. This was the only time she could remember visiting the hearth that Beatrix hadn't been waiting for her at the entranceway. Could her friend be jealous? Is that why she'd stopped calling? When they last spoke, Kara had told her that Juan Carlos had finally proposed and that she had accepted. After expressing some confusion over how an engagement differed from dating or from marriage, Beatrix had asked whether it still meant that they would someday join a human-worgen expedition and go colonize some strange new world together. Kara had reassured her that she and Juan Carlos had promising careers at CE and that they were both on track to join the colonization efforts. Beatrix emerged out of the fire room in the center of the dwelling and Kara staggered backward. In all the years she'd known her, Kara had never seen Beatrix without some head covering. Usually she put on a coronatus, the leafy headdress that all Wurgens wore. But today, the flat top of her head was exposed, and a rubbery cord extended out of her cranium, dragging along the floor to another room in the hearth. Kara, Beatrix said, smiling. I'm sorry that I haven't returned your messages. It's just... These past few weeks have been a very private time for me. Kara pointed to the tether. You, you're, yes, it was my time. She looked at the floor, embarrassed. Why didn't you tell me, B? She rubbed her shoulders nervously and didn't answer. Kara understood that Worgens were notoriously private about their reproductive cycle, but this was her best friend. She felt wounded by the fact that Beatrix hadn't confided in her. Then she remembered what Beatrix had told her all those years ago about the absorption of one worgen into another based on their genetic makeup, about incorporation. B, tell me you're genetically dominant, please. Beatrix continued rubbing her shoulders. A moment later, the worgen at the other end of the tether entered the room. He was shorter than Beatrix, with gray-flecked scales he covered with a dark blue robe. Ambus. Kara gasped. But... A pleasure to finally see you up close, he said. But there was no pleasure in his voice, no worgen servility, 
only an undercurrent of hostility. Kara turned to Beatrix, eyes wide. Your brother? Of course, there are very few of us on Titan, and we're genetically compatible. We can safely interbreed for another generation. You don't owe her any explanations, Beatrix, Ambus said. I apologize for his tone, Kara, Beatrix said. When he saw you approaching our hearth, he took a dose of the suppressant. He'll be more himself in a few minutes. What does it feel like to hold so much sway over another person's life? Ambus said to Kara, Do you realize how unfair you've been to her? That she's your loyal slave because she has no choice? She's not my slave, Kara said. Your people and ours are at war, a secret war. We're all soldiers in that great battle and don't even know it. B, Kara said. I just wanted to make sure you were all right. I really have to get back to Juan Carlos. What, you're leaving before we can bow down to you and wash your feet? Ambus said. Kara stepped into her shoes and walked back through the archway to the hearth, which reactivated her body field. Kara, I'm sorry, Beatrix said. Don't leave. Look, I can't... I can't deal with all this. I can't believe you're with him. The sight of the tether repulsed her. Kara! Beatrix shouted from behind her. But Kara marched ahead through the gusting snow without looking back. Encrypted. Med Journal Entry Number 226 by Dr. Juan Carlos Barbaron. Tether contraction can commence as early as six months Terran after absorption and accelerate, bringing the passive and dominant mates ever closer together. This triggers the growth of nerve fibers on the dominant organ's dermal scales in anticipation of the final stages of corpus meiosis, i.e. incorporation. Kara floated through the thick liquid hydrocarbons with her eyes closed. It felt like she had left the present behind, like she had traveled back to when she was ten years old, hunting purpuffers for the very first time. She broke the surface of the waters and threw her head back. Beatrix sat on the shore, hugging her knees and watching her. She had said that it might still be possible to swim, despite her tethered status, but that she preferred not to because Ambus didn't much enjoy the lake. He sat, about twenty-five feet to her left, clutching their bunched-up tether and examining a bot. They could move almost fifty feet apart given their cord's length and elasticity, but Ambus couldn't be far away enough as far as Kara was concerned. In all the years that she'd known Beatrix, her friend had never seemed more alien than she did at that moment with the flesh-colored cord dangling from her head, snaking across the shore toward Ambus. Poor Bee. How much time did she have left? Kara descended again, peering through the natural muck of the methane. Something caught her attention. A circular shape pulsed by her feet. She reached down, pushed her hand through the ring, and the creature instinctively contracted on her wrist. Kara rose up out of the viscous methane and raised her fist in the air, flashing her find to Beatrix, a phosphorescent purple per puffer. Beatrix clapped her hands and shouted, Well done, Kara! 
Well done. How many times did they dive together for per puffers, searching for the elusive purple one, the top prize? Kara couldn't imagine ever doing this without her best friend at her side. She swam back to shore. Ambus moved as far away as his tether would allow, sitting on the other side of a dune with his back to them. Kara, it's lovely, Beatrix said, fingering the per puffer. Kara sighed happily. After all, All of these years, I was beginning to think the purple ones were just a myth. Are you going to die for more? No, I have to go meet Juan Carlos for lunch. Don't go. Disappointment washed across Beatrix's face. Kara, don't take this the wrong way, but I don't like what you've told me about him. Kara raised an eyebrow. It was unlike Beatrix to make a negative statement about a human being. Let alone to express her disagreement so openly. Normally, if her opinion differed from Kara's, she would hesitate or turn her head away when responding. When something moved her, she would tilt her head to the left and nod. Kara had learned to read her subtle mannerisms. You don't know Juan Carlos, Kara said. Why doesn't he ever join us? He's busy. Kara could never bring herself to tell Beatrix the truth. Despite Juan Carlos's many fine qualities, his drop dead looks, his sharp wit and analytical mind, his love for her, he had a low threshold for socializing with Worgens. He made it a point to minimize the time he spent in their presence. They're lapdogs, Kara, he had said to her that morning, trying to persuade her not to visit Beatrix. Doesn't it offend you? That such intelligent beings can be so fatuous, so sycophantic. They're like lovesick schoolchildren. Undeniable, really. But he had never met Beatrix, and their friendship transcended that species' drive. Kara had to believe that, and certainly she had no biochemical reason for the fondness she felt for Beatrix. If it's so offensive, she had answered. Maybe we shouldn't be accepting their technology, hmm? She made a face and kissed him on the cheek. I know you don't want me to go, but I really need to visit B at the lake. Juan Carlos's objections had dissuaded her from seeing Beatrix over the past few weeks. I don't like the way I left things with her the last time we met. I'll see you at lunch, okay? Now, as she toweled off, Kara spotted a shape that Beatrix had sculpted in the sand. Instead of a spaceship, it was the familiar oval outline of a Worgen hearth. Are you going to talk to your father about joining one of the next few expeditions? Kara said. Juan Carlos and I were thinking of Langalana. No. I don't think that's a good idea, Beatrix said. What do you mean? C.E. doesn't need any more Worgens. The Explorata is already swamped with qualified volunteers. Ambus thinks that we might be better off staying here. Kara didn't know how to respond. She stuffed her towel into her carry tube and said, I'm sorry to hear that. Beatrix stared in Ambus's direction. I found where Ambus kept the suppressant, Kara, and I threw it away. That's why he's keeping his distance. He knows that if he speaks to you, if he sees you up close, he'll feel the same way that I feel about you.
B. Once you're incorporated, you'll see. You and Ambus will be good friends. I know it. Kara's eyes filled, and she nodded. Yes, of course we will. But she said this only for Beatrix's sake. She knew that Ambus wanted to resist falling under humanity's spell, and that she'd respect his wishes by keeping her distance. It wouldn't be fair to him if she didn't. Then again, how fair had she been to Beatrix all these years? Beatrix's lips quivered, and she reached out and clutched Kara's wrist. Promise me, we'll be friends forever. Be, promise me. Friends forever, be. Kara said. She hesitated. Does it still feel good to hold my hand? More than you can know. Maybe Kara had been fooling herself all these years. Maybe Beatrix's loyal, unconditional love was just the product of a biochemical reaction. Maybe she'd been as unfair to Beatrix as Ambus claimed. I have to go, Kara said. Now, I'm afraid so, she answered. I don't want to have another fight with Juan Carlos. She took a few steps away from the Worgens. Then turned and hurried back to Beatrix. Without saying a word, she slipped the purple perpuffer onto her best friend's wrist. Encrypted Med Journal Entry Number Two Two Seven by Doctor Juan Carlos Barbaron, Incorporation. As the head tail continues its relentless contraction, dermal contact follows. And nerve fibers penetrate the pore receptors on the scales across the passive organ's body. This quickly disintegrates cell walls as the mates merge, commencing macromitosis. Genetic materials, primarily nucleic acids, flow from the dominant to the passive organ, and an impregnation of the rear sac results. Scales along the dorsal spine grow into multiple nubs. Fetuses that develop outside the worgen's body, attached to its back. See related entry number one nine five on multiple birth worgen broods and their vulnerability to dopamine neurotransmitters as a counteragent to suppressor drugs. Kara and Juan Carlos stepped through the hearth's archway as the bots skittered into the back rooms to alert Beatrix and Ambus of their arrival. Five minutes, Juan Carlos said. Not one minute longer. He'd only permitted her to come on the condition that he accompany her to ensure she'd be out quickly. He said he feared that they'd encounter more wargans than necessary, since they tended to mob around humans. It's not safe for you to be walking around these Worgen neighborhoods, with the terrorist bombings at the Martian colony. How long will it be before they strike here on Titan? We may be forced to make some difficult decisions at Biotech, but we need to protect ourselves. He turned away and tapped his eyelids to open up a retinal connection to the newscasts. Five minutes. He blinked and made a connection. His eyes glazing over. Juan Carlos enjoyed being in control, but she knew he had her best interests at heart. She thought about objecting. She had no doubt he was overreacting, but didn't want to provoke an argument. 
the media had blown out of proportion an incident involving a faction of so-called Worgen rebels, an oxymoron if ever she'd heard one, that had caused some unrest on Mars and other sister colonies. A minute later, Beatrix and Ambus entered the room. They now stood no more than six inches apart. Their tether had lost its elasticity, and Beatrix's head drooped to one side. Her left leg had disappeared inside of Ambus's right leg, so they walked awkwardly, like a three-legged monstrosity lurching forward. In a matter of months, Beatrix, her friend, would be gone forever, absorbed into Ambus's form and broken down into the chemical components that would leave him impregnated. Beatrix's face had a semi-glazed look, a blank stare, but when she caught sight of Kara, a brightness washed over her face. Kara, she said, but then the spark of recognition faded. Kara stood to hug her, but couldn't do so without also putting her arms around Ambus. Thank you for visiting, Ambus said. Juan Carlos blinked off his retinal connection. He had a strange expression Kara couldn't quite identify. Disgust? Fascination? as he greeted them. Beatrix and Ambus went to take a seat, but couldn't do so because of their physical condition. "'It's kind of you to come,' Ambus said. "'I know how much B wanted to see you.' From the way he smiled and bowed his head, he clearly had no suppressant in his system. "'Oh, Beatrix,' Kara said. "B, "'No, it's fine, it's fine,' Ambus said. How have you been? How are your parents? She told them about her mother's death, about her father joining the expedition to Langalana, and as they conversed, Kara noticed that only Ambus spoke. She gazed directly into Beatrix's eyes and tried speaking only to her. Do you remember the seasons we spent diving off the shore of Ontario Lacus? We practically covered ourselves head to toe with purpuffers. A brief smile flashed across Beatrix's face. Then it went blank again. Yes, those are strong memories, Kara, Ambus said. She'll remember them right up to the point of incorporation. After that, it's even possible I may still retain a stray experience, a random memory, but I can't guarantee any particular one will survive. Kara placed her hands over Beatrix's. Hey, B, are you in there? She's in there, Ambus answered, fully cognizant of everything you say. Can't she answer me? I speak for her now. Kara paused. So will there be nothing left of her? Of course, Ambus said. Her knowledge of nanotech, her facility with plants... A few random experiences. Her most useful skills will survive incorporation, creating a new me. What about her dreams, Ambus? Kara's voice trembled. What about her dreams of exploring the universe? He paused. I've come to like it here on Titan, Kara. I can't say... Juan Carlos shot her a look and glanced dramatically at his watch. B, honey, Kara said, patting her hand. I have to go. I'm sorry, 
Juan Carlos needs to be somewhere right now, and I promised I'd accompany him. That's fine, Ambus answered. But Kara, you have to promise you'll come visit again soon. Beatrix would love to see you again before incorporation is complete. Beatrix's eyes remain rolled back in her head, and a bit of clear drool oozed out of the corner of her mouth. Kara couldn't bear to see her like this. But she would never abandon her friend in the final moments of her life. Of course I'll be back, B. She leaned in close and whispered in her ear, We'll go to the lake again, and you can sit on the shore and watch while I die for purpuffers for us, okay? She felt the tears well up and fought them back. Kara, Juan Carlos said softly, we should get going. She took a deep breath and waved goodbye to her friend, wondering how much of her would remain when next they met. Encrypted. Med Journal Entry Number 228 by Dr. Juan Carlos Barbaron. Cutting the tether of mated worgens results in an instantaneous loss of identity, followed by a rapid and painful death. The smog that blanketed Titan was thinner than usual on this day, so much so that Kara could almost make out the outline of ringed Saturn filling half the sky. In all of her years of living on Titan, this was the first time she'd ever seen the planet with her naked eye. Its proximity caused the tidal waves that drove down from the poles toward the equator. She felt awkward visiting Beatrix's hearth. So much time had passed that her friend was certainly long gone by now. Damn Juan Carlos. She would never forgive herself for allowing him to keep her away all this time. She had made a promise, and she would keep it. If nothing else, she owed it to Beatrix's memory. As she followed the winding trail down a steep hill toward the familiar hearth, she slowed down. What if incorporation wasn't complete? What if pieces of B were still visible? She imagined the segments of an arm jutting out of Ambus's chest, two half-heads merged together into a disfigured monstrosity, she wouldn't be able to bear the sight of it. No, more than a year had passed. She began walking again. When she got within twenty feet of the hearth, four Wurgen children raced out through the archway in her direction. They ran in circles around her, saying, Good morning, and can we help you? Over and over. She stooped down. Are you Beatrix's children? One of the thicker squatter females said, My name is Antilia. Ambus is our father. Is he inside? The children nodded excitedly and followed close behind her. When she entered the hearth's archway, Ambus stood there as if expecting her, even after all this time. I knew you would come, Ambus said. There was no longer any sign of the Ambus she remembered, the worgen who spurned all contact with humanity. He threw his arms around her, and she hugged him back. He looked different, thinner, and his scales had familiar flicks of silver. He guided her into the fire room, where a transparent tube that ran from floor to ceiling blazed with flames. "'Your children are beautiful, Ambus,' she said. 
the Wurgen children tittered and whispered to each other. I need to speak alone with Kara for a moment, he said to them, and they slowly, reluctantly, left the fire room, staring over their shoulders at her, trying to sneak one final glance. House spots skittered at Kara's feet, taking away her boots, while others brought in a tray with a cup of steaming spicy sap. How's Juan Carlos? he asked, as they took their seats in front of the roaring fire column at the center of the room. I broke off our engagement. Ambos gasped. He was so possessive, so secretive about his work at biotech. I thought I could change him, but it didn't happen. She set down her cup of cider sap. He didn't like it when I visited with friends, when I did anything without him, and I went along with what he wanted. I started to feel suffocated. I couldn't continue living that way under someone else's thumb. I didn't like the person I was becoming. Ambus stared incredulously. After a long pause, he said, Sometimes I forget how truly alien you are. She smiled. No, of course you wouldn't understand. They drank their sap, and all the while Ambus leaned forward on his elbows and fixated on her every word. He offered her food. He asked whether she wanted him to feed the flames so she could luxuriate in the warmth of the fire column. Are you sure I can't get you something else? Ambus said. The initial joy Kara felt at being back in Beatrix's hearth began to drain away as she listened to Ambus's steady stream of fatuous remarks. She had to face the bittersweet truth. Her best friend was gone forever. It could never be the same with just any other worgen. She couldn't imagine herself without Beatrix. Before she even realized it, she started to cry. Kara, what is it? I was thinking about something you told me once, that it was unfair of me to have remained friends with Beatrix for so many years. She wiped away the tears and regained her composure. I think you may have been right. I should have freed her of her biochemical shackles. Again, I wasn't myself at the time. I had taken the suppressant which skewed my perception of reality. Please, forget about what I said to you. It was unkind of me. Unkind. But true. Kara, did Beatrix explain what happened to my suppressants? Kara recalled their conversation on the lakeshore, when Beatrix had explained how she'd found where Ambus hid the drugs and destroyed them. Yes, she kept them from you. On the day that we met you at the shore, Ambus paused as if considering the consequences of his words. Beatrix had taken the suppressants herself. What? She said she wanted to have a better understanding of her relationship with you, Kara. Its effects were temporary, only a matter of minutes, but in those minutes... She experienced a clear understanding of her true feelings. Kara dreaded asking, but she did. And how did she really feel about me in that moment of clarity? She never told me. 
and the memory didn't survive incorporation. I'm sorry, I don't know. After an extended, awkward silence, they talked about other subjects. Politics, the terrorist attacks on the Martian settlement, the rumored abandonment of the Langalana outpost, the future of human Wurgen colonization efforts, and so on. And when it came time for her to leave, Kara knew that she would never return here again. As she stood and the bots relaced her boots, Ambos said, Before you go, there's something I need to give you. A few seconds later, a bot entered the room carrying a small metal box. Beatrix wanted you to have this. It's a stasis box, Kara said. She carefully lifted the lid and looked inside. A purple purpuffer sat at its center. Beatrix preserved it for so many months, Ambus said. I don't understand its significance. Kara slipped it onto her wrist. Removing it from the stasis box meant that the purpuffer wouldn't last for more than a day or two before decaying. But it didn't matter. Thank you, Ambus, she said softly. Ambus tilted his head to the left in a familiar manner and nodded. As Kara made her way out the exit archway, she told herself she'd never see this hearth again. But after only a few seconds, she couldn't resist looking back over her shoulder. She saw Ambus out in front, surrounded by the four Wurgen children, all of them staring raptly at her as she trudged through the methane snowdrifts. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is David's. But David, big thank you. It's been, you know, we've had these stories for a while there, and it's just been nice to kind of get them out there and, you know, tell everyone about your work. You know, that story snatched. It's just a, a one to kind of look out for as well, so... There you go. I'll put links on the David's site, you know, pop over there, and, you know, get his little book. That would be fantastic. So that is Starship Sova's show 287. Big thank you to Amy. You know, I can actually just sit in the background and do poker all. The M's have just done the show. So Amy, big thank you. You know, great fact article there. And just a tremendous narration. And like you see, I'm thanking Advance for all you're going to do on SofaCon. Look out for that. Next we're going to play a little promo for Shared World Anthology called Walk the Fire The Flames Any who step through may stride across the world and beyond A precious, precious few The ferrymen can guide you true through any flame and emerge from a crossing as young and strong as when first the flame kissed them. Fleets travel space for lifetimes, reach new worlds, challenge the black between galaxies, all thanks to the ferryman. But is there a price hidden in the ferryman's fire? I'm John Miro, creator and editor of the Walk the Fire anthology series. I'm kickstarting Volume 2, a very small number of us can walk through these special flames and arrive anywhere just by willing it so. What would happen to your humanity if you became functionally 
immortal. What would happen to humanity when it spread far and wide throughout this galaxy and others? Help me kickstart this campaign and find out. Learn more at servingworlds.com. Walk the fire. The universe awaits. May the ferryman take you. There you go. I'll put a link on so you can pop over there and have a look at that. And, you know, if you want to kind of get into that Kickstarter and help that little anthology, that would be fantastic. But if you want to come over and do some writing, you know, we, we even teach that. 16th of June, Paul DeFilippo and Mike Resnick. I would love to see you on that. There's a link on the front of the website there. Nice pay- widget by Scott, who's done that artwork for that. Scott, big bear hug. Thank you so much for that. And my glass is getting empty. Someone, quickly to the bar. Support Starship Sofa. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I'm as high as a kite for some reason. I don't know this coffee. I've just woke up. I've been on blizzard of night shifts there. I don't know if I'm batting or balling. And I'm just like... <laughs> high is the best thing to describe it. High on science fiction fantasticness. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.